Hello there. Welcome to the 41st Digital Foundry Direct Weekly. Of course, it's our weekly show where we talk about the latest gaming uh, and technology news. Joining me this week, John Linneman. Greetings, Richard. Are you ready to discuss the Jeffs? I am ready to discuss the Jeffs, and uh, but I couldn't do it without uh, my hashtag uh, friend and colleague, Alex Battaglia. Salutations, Rich. Um, yeah, I'm excited to talk about the Jeffs. Yes, the Jeffs, the Game Awards. Well, where do we begin with this? Uh, essentially, uh, it starts at a really inconvenient time for anybody that isn't in the US. So uh, we're not fully uh, au fait with the, full round, uh, with the full lowdown of what was there. We've got a pretty good idea of all of the gameplay stuff that, which was uh, there. And... Um, Remarkably, the vast wealth of CG trailers that was bestowed upon us. Um, okay, tricky one, this, because we never quite know what's real and what isn't. John, why don't you go first with uh, with a title that caught your eye? All right, the first one that caught my eye actually was some CG, mostly CG, but they showed some gameplay, gameplay clips at the end. Yes. And that's a Warhammer Space Marine 2. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> I, I'm excited for this because I, I think this is a very underrated game on the last last generation of consoles and PC, uh, which, you know, I mean, it's Warhammer. They they pretty much own the Space Marine. So, uh, <laughs> and yeah, they did a great job of creating sort of this action hack and slash kind of experience utilizing that world in a way and the, the combination of the storytelling and just the flow of the action uh, and the combination of melee plus distance combat it felt very satisfying and it gave you that real sense of just like heft that you would expect. And this new one, uh, I really love the way it looked there at the end. And it looks like it's being done by Saber Interactive along with, um, uh, the publisher on possible forgetting oh, yeah. focus is focus, focus, right? Focus home interactive. Yeah. Yeah. Focus is doing that as well. So, um, I thought it looked really good and I was happy that we at least got a little bit of, what looks to be in-engine stuff at the end there. Focus Home Interactive games tend to use Unreal Engine, so I I would be very surprised if this wasn't using Unreal Engine. Uh, I, like John, I'm a huge fan of the first game. Technologically, it's pretty cool. Uh, also, from the time period, it had like real-time shadows when it was not That was common. its own engine, wasn't it? it yeah, it was then? its own engine back then, uh, uh, which, you know, uh, one of the lead engineers went on to work uh, on like the Call of Duty engines for a, uh, for a long time there, uh, and then moved over to Roblox now, actually, oddly enough. Um, but, uh, you know, this game, uh, what it's looking at here, I expect very similar combat from the first game. And it actually, interestingly, looks like it's using the exact same story beats. Like, the character is actually the one from the first game. So this is a direct sequel. Who would have ever thought that you'd get a direct sequel to a double-A budget title almost by, by Relic, uh, you know, more than a decade later? I'm excited. Uh, other games, though, at the show? What, what also caught your eye there, John? I guess we just checked out A, a Plague Tale Requiem which uh, also looked really good. And that trailer seemed to consist entirely of in-game or at least in-engine stuff, right? Uh, so I feel like it gives us a good idea of what the game's actually going to look like, unlike a lot of the things here. So I, I do appreciate that. I mean, the original game was beautiful, but uh, they sort of improved like the general facial expressions and general character movement felt a little stiff in the original, I would say. Uh, and also things like, you know, the, the swarm of rats and the particles here and some of the destruction in this trailer looks really, really good. So 
I'm happy to see that. Obviously, they, they showed the Matrix Awakens stuff, which we have a huge video about uh, up on the channel by now. Uh, but what we didn't say at the time was that the Coalition also worked on this, so uh, which is really, really cool. So they worked alongside Epic to help optimize uh, the final demo. So... But the thing is, though, is like as a that that blew me away, and it's such a great looking thing. But when it's sandwiched between a bunch of CGI kind of trailers, uh, it does kind of lessen the impact. And I think people, I think the problem is that when you see that demo there with so many other rendered things, uh, it kind of makes. I think people would just think, oh, that's just you know, another rendered piece, uh, another pre-rendered piece, right? By default, but it's not so. Uh, that was cool. Another one that, that we saw that I'm a little bit weirded out by. I mean, I'm obviously a big fan of Sonic games. Everybody knows that. What can I say? Uh, they showed us uh, Sonic Rangers and I'm just like, um, <laughs> it's basically like, oh, it's a, now it's like a big realistic looking open world. Like on one hand, dropping Sonic into a huge like world where you can travel across a large space uh, we know that works. We've seen like Sage demos that do this really well, and it's it's fun to control like a high speed object like Sonic moving through the world like that. But I'm not really sure what to think about the stylistic choices because uh, the aesthetic is very much not what I would want. So <laughs> we'll see. I reserve judgment on this yeah. one. We, we talked about this trailer before when it was initially shown off, but now they've actually shown it off in-game snippets is uh, Senua's Saga Hellblade 2, where the initial trailer, um, they said it was an engine, and it was back before Unreal Engine 5 was even in the hands of any developer that wasn't epic. So I I had a, a you know a breakdown video that I made basically saying, like, at the moment of the making of this video, this is not possible at all. <laughs> and which was, I'm going to be completely honest, it was completely true what I said back then. Um, now, though, we're looking at Senua's Saga's Hellblade 2. Uh, the scene on the beach, essentially from that first trailer, drawn out into a gameplay stretch. Gameplay, I would put in kind of brackets here, because it is ex extremely scripted linear sequence. It's literally just going backwards and forwards on a beach. Um, looking really, really good visually. Um, you know, there are some things in there where I think it doesn't look as good as the initial trailer, uh, but that's mainly just, I think, due to the fact that, you know, a lot of the scenes don't ha actually have, like, super awesome setup lighting. It's just, like, the random environmental lighting at the moment when the camera turns to look at Senua. Uh, you know, you can't really do anything about that. I thought it looked really, really good, but I'm just really curious what the heck you do in this game i mean you played the original <laughs> right i'm positive it's going to be similar to that and possibly expanded with uh okay you know, i guess interacting with um these other folks within the world but you know i i it's it's a storytelling game right okay first yeah. and foremost right it's puzzles light action and storytelling uh at least the original yeah. was I think uh, from my perspective, this one is interesting, though it may well, well not be real time, right? But it, it looks feasible. And uh, and this is the thing, right? I actually think, you know, we've been complaining about uh, the CG trailers for years now, and, and there is slow, gradual movement that, you know, occasionally we get captions that come up that say in-engine, which is kind of a, a, a sort of term that can mean anything, but at least it's trying to give you some level of disclosure on um, Sony and, and Xbox, they usually have like captured on Xbox Series X or captured on PlayStation 5. 
But the Jeffs, the Jeffs haven't quite got there yet. So we've got this situation where you move from one game to the next and you've got no idea if it's real or not, if you are looking at a breakthrough in real-time rendering or not, if this even actually represents the game in any way, shape or form or not. I mean, if you look at like the Wonder Woman trailer, at least, you know, they didn't have anything to show. So they had like uh, just basically, you know, um, some oblique renderings of Wonder Woman, uh, the, lo the logo of the developer doing it, and um, and the logo of the game, and that was it. And that's kind of all you need. If you've got nothing to show, that's the approach to take. Um, but then you have something like Star Wars Eclipse, where um, I guess you have some idea of the setting and, um, uh, and, and what they might be trying to achieve. But is the game going to look like that? I don't know. I don't think so. In which case, what's the point? And, you know, the problem is, as John sort of alluded to earlier, the games that do actually give a real-time showing, they are cheapened as a result. So I don't know if Jeff is watching this, but essentially, um, you know, the actual great work, the actual end product that users are getting is made worse by being uh, placed alongside these uh, pie-in-the-sky renders. So put a disclosure on it, you know, make it obvious if you know if it is just a promo intro, make it obvious, and um, and then we might be able to move on. But you know, it, this is what this seems to be the approach that other people are taking, right? That's an interesting point as well because we are actually reaching the point where they're getting closer. Like you can usually still tell when something's CGI, right? But uh, in the past, it was really obvious. So if they showed a promotional video that was just pre-rendered stuff, you know, you just kind of shrug because you know that's what it is. Uh, but now it kind of starts to feel like we're getting into that deception territory a little bit, where when it's not made clear, uh, it can set expectations either too high or too low or, you know, things like that. So I think that's this does need some caution. Yeah. And, and you know, if you've got your edit done well and you're showing off the game and your game is great, then, you know, it's going to sell. It's going to look great. And um, this is, you know, what Kojima did with that last Death Stranding trailer that he edited himself. Thought that was a fan, you know, that was a classic example of, um, you know, showing the game, showing it looking beautiful, showing it looking dynamic, expert editing, and it just worked. And it's actually quite ironic, I think, in that case, that um, he didn't actually seem to want it presented alongside other trailers. He put it out himself, it stood alone. So that's an interesting point because actually, I think Kojima style trailers are my favorite type of trailers because they often use angles that aren't necessarily in the game. But uh, it seems like the concept there is to give the viewer an idea of this is the type of stuff you do in the game. We're going to show it from different cinematic angles, but we're going to use like the, the real time graphics, or at least, you know, maybe rendered out, of course. But this is what the game will look like. This is an idea of what you can do in the game. Uh, and we're going to intersperse like storytelling sequences in there. So it's not like a movie trailer. It's very clearly a trailer designed to show off what the game is about. And I love that kind of trailer. Uh, and I feel like we don't see enough of it. And I, and I understand like the cost of doing that is really high. There's no doubt about it, but still, uh, I don't know. The whole thing is it, we're in a weird place with this kind of stuff. Well, I'll tell you what, John, that Star Wars Eclipse uh, CG wasn't cheap to produce. Yeah, no, I was thinking, but it's like, that stuff's more expensive. It's expensive in a different way. It's usually yeah. they spend that money on, on a production house that does that specializes in that type of work, right? 
Mm-hmm. So it's still yeah. it's still expensive. <laughs> Just uh, so classic classic case in point here, Destiny Two. We we all know what Destiny Two looks like, right? Um, but this trailer was 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 a sort of astonishing biotechnic display uh, with real life inserts or, or CG inserts, and, and you kind of wonder, okay, what, why? You yeah, know? What's the maybe purpose? the game. I mean, maybe I'm completely wrong. Maybe Destiny Two: The Witch Queen will look like that. In which case, <laughs> I, I will be chastened and bowed by uh, the the accomplishment here. But otherwise, what's the point? Um, I don't know, some other stuff that was in there. Alan Wake 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, any thoughts on this one? I mean, what do you think, Alex? I'm kind of okay. Like, we're just talking about we don't like these pre-rendered sort of teasers that much. And they were upfront about that, I think, with this. Yeah. Uh, where I think there's a little text that says that it's not representative of the game graphics, which I think is smart. <laughs> okay. But they don't show enough bombastic stuff that you feel like you would get your hopes up. It's just enough to tease the existence of this thing and give you an idea of the the mood they're going for without saying like you know like expect this from the game yeah i think i think this is literally just all about i mean i i'm a little bit more forgiving here because this project is one that doesn't need to exist it's not like your huge triple a bombastic explosion trailer with cgi it's literally just saying by the way alan wake this cult classic exists in the second form so i'm a little bit more forgiving there um other games uh, that we saw that I was looking forward to seeing uh, uh, that we did see and it is cool to see them is the the Ember uh, Embark's first game. Uh, Arc Raiders was also shown off. Um, I don't actually know exactly what style of game this is. It, it seems to be like player versus, I don't know, like AI in the environment, a bit like co-op destiny. That's the kind of, that's the feeling I got from it, but it looked visually very great, uh, just like stunning and, and a lot of shots. And that was in-engine, thankfully, uh, showing real gameplay, actually behind the shoulder kind of camera shots in there. Uh, another thing that we saw here was the Suicide Squad game. One of the things I really liked seeing about that is, yes, there was, uh, there was like some parts that appeared to be in-engine uh, pre-rendered sequences at the very beginning, but then it switched over to 60 FPS gameplay. Um, I don't think the game is for me at all, based upon every single thing I saw there, but I was at least really happy to see that, uh, definitely. I, I don't love the, the, I guess, like, the tone necessarily, but Rocksteady's stuff, like, Rocksteady's games are usually really well made. Uh, so I am definitely interested in giving it a try. Yeah, it's certainly been years in development, so uh, we expect to see pretty fantastic end products. Uh, something I'm kind of curious to hear your take on, uh, John, the new Cuphead. Oh, that's right. They announced some of that. Uh, it was they it had those little like model sequences between that as well, which is cute. Uh, I mean, Cuphead was on my game of the year list that the year it came out for a reason. So. What can I say? I mean, I, I would love to have more Cuphead. So, yeah, that's very, very good news. So, yeah, it seemed to have this cartoon style, which we're familiar with, but also a kind of modeling. Yeah, that's what uh, I'm not clear on. I'm not on. quite sure of how the two styles compare, really. Exactly. but mm, And how it's all going to integrate. I mean, I'm I guess so... maybe it's them, a play of them being like analog, having an analog, another analog style in the game, you know, models and then, you know. Maybe that's what it is. So was there anything stand out that, you know, was made this event worthwhile? <laughs> we haven't for seen me, the whole event, have we? 
We haven't seen the whole event. No, we haven't I seen have Sting. Not. I haven't seen Sting's uh, no doubt standout performance. Uh, oh, man. Was uh, he wearing the Dune, uh, like the you know, like the nice underwear from Dune? <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Write that in the comments below. If Sting was wearing his Dune if, underwear. Have you got your own cosplay? <laughs> got my own. Uh, but speaking of Dune, my goodness, uh, there's a new Dune, re- <laughs> new Dune real time strategy game that was announced. Um, I actually didn't know who the creators were, but the last time we saw a Dune game was, I think, Dune 2000. Uh, that I think. I mean, of. I mean, Dune was like, like Dune 2, I guess, was like the granddaddy of real time strategy in many yeah. ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then also, Homeworld 3 was announced, uh, another game. Uh, well, not announced, but gameplay was shown off for it. Uh, that one, hard to really, uh, really get a sense of how it looks, honestly, even from the gameplay trailer. <laughs> Uh, so I think that could have d- been done better, but uh, I like that RTS games also, PC-exclusive RTS games, have a showing at this TGAs, the Jeffs. <laughs> so I think, uh, well, you know, I think for me, the, the standout thing is obviously The Matrix Awakens, and we've discussed that at length elsewhere. Um, and the thing that I like about The Matrix Awakens is that it's kind of like um, we're emerging from this dark tunnel that is cross-gen. And uh, I was hoping from the Jeffs that there would be more trailers that would emphasize that cross-gen is behind us. And maybe with uh, Hellblade 2, we got some of that. Uh, but elsewhere, uh, probably not much. So, But again, a lot of these trailers were um, for games that are coming next year. Uh, Dying Light 2, for example, which I am quite excited about. Um, there's still the, the wild card, I would call it, that is Doke V. I love being <laughs> the wild card. <laughs> yeah. uh, which, I, you know, again, I've got, I haven't Do- got a clue what's going on there, but I want to find out. <laughs> that looks awesome. But uh- that, so I think that trailer was actually like a rendered out version from their engine because one, it was 60 FPS, which was nice, yes. but what? I don't think they could do all those scene and, and asset swaps and like, you know, 16 milliseconds, basically. <laughs> I don't think so either. That's absurd. But yeah. it looked good. <laughs> Looks good. Anything else to talk about here? I mean, all I've got to say about this is um, I, I don't feel particularly enlightened uh, or excited by um, by a lot of the stuff here. But you can download that Matrix Awakens demo right now. Take a look at it. This is, this is next level stuff. It's amazing. And um, just download it. Enjoy it. And uh, with the reveal that the Coalition were involved, things start to slot into place with that Series S version. Um, because because we just couldn't believe that the Series S was capable of doing this. Um, and, you know, to be fair, maybe we should do a more in-depth platform comparison because there are nips and tucks beyond resolution. But man, the, the concept of Series S doing that is uh, is quite... Yeah, it's quite cool. That ain't going to work uh, on the Xbox One X. (laughs) (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) No, I don't think so. I think uh, the, the, well, actually, it's an interesting discussion point. We could quickly talk about it now because obviously the GPU would be stronger, but it won't have the hardware. Yeah, but it's the other tracing. Yeah. So, yeah. So perhaps not. Uh, All I've got to really say beyond that is that it's kind of um, comes across really as a strongly US focused event to the point where its transmission time basically means that if you're in Europe or in other territories in the world, you're you're probably not going to watch it. You're going to do exactly what we did today, which is to um, either go through it at speed or to look at one of the trailer compilations. So it's not it's not I don't think it's a particularly world um, inclusive event. 
Yeah, I I agree. Like the whole it being a show thing is kind of destroyed by this because nobody over here can really enjoy it in that sense. And watching, trying to watch something like this, like uh, the next day, doesn't really do it for me. So no. it's kind of a shame. No. Uh, I, I mean, you I can just, see clearly yeah. a lot of production effort money went into making this happen, right? It's clearly a huge undertaking. So I can, you know, regardless how anybody feels about what's in there, uh, it's it's obviously a very big, big, big thing to produce. So it's cool that it actually happens. Uh, I just wish it was like aired for us at a time that wasn't like the middle of the night. Well, one thing I'd like to uh, sort of raise here is um, it did did look to be an in-person event, right? Everybody was going to it. Uh, we are still in the midst of a pandemic. And typically, I mean, our parents' company or our partner company runs events and Microsoft, Sony, etc., aren't turning up to these events because of the pandemic. I realize it's quite different in terms of scale, in terms of the amount of people participating. But going into 2022, there's a huge wealth of games and um, it would be great to actually see uh, those those games at events. So yeah, fingers crossed that's gonna happen. But yeah, that's, that's it. That's the Game Awards 2021, the Jeffs. Let's move on to our next topic. This is one that's close to your heart, Alex Batalia. Yes, yes. Horizon Zero Dawn on PC. It's a game that um, uh, we've got a big history with because we've kind of been charting its evolution from being a really bad port into a fairly decent port. And it, this evolution continues because um, the game has had a whole bunch of additions, um, including NVIDIA DLSS, and um, something to do with the shader compilation, which you'll no doubt inform us about in more depth. AMD FSR, this is starting to look pretty good, right? Yeah, it's uh, so they didn't have to update this game. I think after the last update, um, it was, I mean, it's still not a, always in a great place in a lot of areas like we were just talking about on the Discord. Uh, the DF Discord, that is, people pointing out other bugs that are still in the game. Like, if you run the game at like 120 FPS or 240 FPS, like, in conversations, people blink and breathe at weird rates and things like that. You know, it's like, it's still not like there. It was obviously a game design and it had trouble porting and all these things. But this is like, I would say, icing on a an okay cake. Like, you know, like a, a two euro cake you get at the corner store. It's okay. This icing, though, is awesome because I did try it out. I loaded up the game DLSS at 4K quality mode uh, running. I mean, I'm, I'm a big PC, but I was just looking at the... Um, the GPU readouts, it could definitely, you could definitely run 4K quality mode on even, I would say, like a mid-spec GPU nowadays. And the quality there in the DLSS in this game is absolutely excellent. Yeah, um, the shots you sent over, like, yeah, oh, that it really looks, transforms the look. Yeah, uh, so like a big deal in, in that game is the TAA is essentially like, it's a riff on SMAA T2X, but instead of the SMAA portion, Gorilla opted to use FXAA, I think maybe for cost originally uh, uh, on the PlayStation there. Uh, that has a knock-on effect, I think, on a lot of the, the games. Really, you know, it has a lot of vegetation. And so that 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 doesn't look so good with that version of SMAA. Um, it's really crinkly and uh, it shimmers quite a bit. Uh, and also, due to the FXAA element, the, the image is actually noticeably softened when you do turn on uh, the game's TAA. 
that is almost all, all gone, actually, with DLSS, even though it's running at a lower internal resolution. Uh, I'll su supply Audi with the screenshots just so we can maybe show them out here on screen, zooming in and just like flipping back and forth. But if you look at any of the detail, it's quite a bit higher on DLSS. This is a still, uh, by the way. Uh, but in movement, uh, what you definitely notice is that the game is a lot more stable in movement. Uh, I did check out other aspects of it, too. Uh, and I did talk with some other people who were doing testing with it. By by and large, it actually has a higher negative LED bias than the normal 4K presentation, so it is sharper, and you get that exact same LED behavior. But there's one asset in the game that apparently is bugged, and it doesn't have this behavior, and it's that like the game's palm trees. Um, so those actually run a lower LOD for some reason with the LSS on. Not other assets. I don't know why that one. But, you know, this game is kind of a jalopy car at this point, so I'm not surprised that there's a bug. The shader compilation is really cool because when the game initially came out, I actually did slightly complain about the length of the initial load uh, because it, it really takes you out of the game. Yeah, it's really long and it wasn't hidden by the initial cinematic. Uh, like usually you would do your shader compilation during like the cinematic, but here it was like you watch a video, you do the shader compilation, and if your PC crashes during shader compilation, which happens, you would have to rewatch the intro video and start shader compilation again. People actually went to, ended up in endless loops constantly uh, when this game came out. Now it's done differently where uh, there's slightly longer initial load when you get into game, and you'll definitely see your, uh, not, well, into the game as in the game world, sorry. Uh, it'll see like shoot up to like 100% utilization. And then in the background, the entire time while you're playing, it will be saying, okay, what shaders should we still be compiling? And it'll be running like a low frequency, but you know, like you can see your, your CPU cores kicking up in the background, just shader compilation. And this will prevent all of the stutters that the game could possibly have. Uh, that is really good. I think this is kind of, in comparison to the way other games do this, I actually do like this quite a bit. It's not the first game to do this, uh, but I, I would like to see more games doing this, and especially ones that had trouble with this, uh, like we just talked recently about Unreal Engine 4 stuff. So all in all, uh, a cool patch. I did not check out FSR, but I looked at some screenshots, and it performs much like you imagine it would. Um, yeah, I looked and, at screenshots uh, as well, and I was yeah. like, well, I mean, hopefully this puts that spike in the FSR versus DLSS debate finally because to rest uh, yeah, yeah yeah i mean it's not real they're not really comparable at all so yeah it, it really isn't and you see that in the comparisons uh, technically especially they're just like not this. the same so they're just not it the doesn't same. make sense to compare um but i look forward to this because i think the reason why they're doing this now is be i, I imagine this is i just imagine that these changes are downstream changes from their work on horizon forbidden west um uh, that's the only reason I can imagine to update a game, you know, almost one year and four months after its initial release uh, with all these things for, I mean, I have no idea why they did this update otherwise. We were talking, I mean, we have no idea on this either way, but I wonder if Nixies was involved because it feels like something that they could have done. Like, hey, now that you work for us, why don't you get some of these ports, like, polished up for us <laughs> that'd be nice <laughs> well, there's a you know i'm all about the global vision right and i'm kind of interested by what's happening here because um this was a, an amd sponsored game right and now it's got nvidia dlss a year on or whatever um but it's there and um it kind of gives me hope that uh, other titles 
which could really have benefited from DLSS, but didn't get it because of this AMD um, sponsorship, will actually now have it retrofitted. Um, and, you know, to be honest, I'm still really interested in seeing what's going to be happening with XCSS oh, and yeah. whether, you know, because <laughs> if, <laughs> if that is the case, that um, it is platform agnostic and it is going to be uh, at some level open source or it may be even fully open source at some point, then all of the arguments that AMD would have against not implementing DLSS in an AMD-sponsored title kind of disappear, right? Because it would work on an AMD GPU. And um, yeah, that, that would be fantastic. But I think there is a gauntlet being thrown down here because we're seeing these features being added by Sony. But typically in Microsoft PC ports, we're not seeing these features. And it was a, a particularly egregious um, uh, issue in both Forza Horizon 5 and especially Halo Infinite. I mean, Halo Infinite, I've got no idea why that game is so heavy. I don't know either. Um, it's weird. It's 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 super heavy. Yeah. And it is on both CPU and GPU. If you can alleviate the GPU side, at least, by using um, a, a really good uh, a super sampler, then it sh they should you know it's it's a service to the PC owner who's got the technology to access these features to put it in, and I've got no idea why it's not happening um, because um, of of late I think uh, Microsoft has had a very decent forward looking approach to um, to the PC market, but this seems to be the last um, the last sort of barrier. Those games with DLSS. Especially Forza, like that would look so good with DLSS. My goodness. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, from my perspective, I think God of War, I mean, God of War is coming out with DLSS and FSR, right? Yeah, it yeah. is, right? Um, so. I think that's been confirmed. So, as you know, that's a new a new game, right? new in, in uh, you know, quote, unquote. But, you know, the bottom line is Sony is getting these features out into their PC ports. I really want to see Microsoft doing the same, right? Because... Um, it's just, it's just uh, at this point, I think basic service to the to the piece, the, the core PC user, right? So you know, let's let's make it happen. Anything else to to add to Horizon Zero Dawn PC? At the moment, no, Rich. No. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> I mean, one thing I will point out. Um, I mean, the God of War recommended specs came out this week, and. Um, Again, similar to Horizon Zero Dawn, it seems to be incredibly heavy, heavy compared, you know, bearing in mind what the base PlayStation 4 was doing. Weird. Yeah, I don't know. We'll check that out because even though they have that original graphical setting, they said like the GTX 1060 is like for 30 FPS at 1080p at original settings. I don't know about that. I mean... Uh, well, based on the showing of Horizon, yeah. possibly, you know, Death Stranding and whatnot. Maybe that is the case. I mean, Death Stranding ran better, though. Yeah, Death Stranding right? was really Death Stranding's fine on the 1060, for the can, most part. Can it do 1080p 60 in original? <sighs> I think it's very close. It's like, okay. I don't know. I have to look back at my It should be footage. a slam dunk. Right? Yeah, yeah, it should be a slam dunk. Uh, yeah. We'll see. I'm going to cover that when it comes out. And if it does actually run that bad on a 1060, I'll probably talk about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And actually, Alex, we were talking about this the other day. I think we need to sunset the 1060 and 580, right? 
I mean, brilliant, brilliant graphics cards for their time. And a lot of people are still using them, right? But we just don't have the bandwidth to talk about. May I propose sunsetting those and bringing back the 750 Ti? <laughs> the seven... <laughs> for that one video. Well, that is actually a really good idea to, because, you know, when the um, last gen consoles came out, 750 Ti was actually very, very close to um, to PS4 performance, but that clearly isn't the case anymore. Uh, but it'd be interesting to see how that or still goes with uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah I'm, I might be tempted to handle that one myself. Yeah, but anyway, anyway, <laughs> let's move on to our next topic. Okay, so obviously, big things are happening in the world of subscription services. Um, Xbox Games Pass, Alex, <laughs> is uh, is is just quite phenomenal. I think. And uh, Sony apparently, reportedly, wants to get in on the action with a beefed up version of uh, PlayStation Plus, codename Spartacus. <laughs> <laughs> the name is I mean, great. Yeah. I, it, it's a great name, isn't it? It's just like entirely inappropriate to a subscription service. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But, but there it is. Um, there's been various rumors and speculation about what it's all about, but essentially, the bottom line seems to be that PlayStation Now is going to be rolled in to PlayStation Plus and offered as a higher tier. And then there's going to be another higher tier on top of that, uh, which bizarrely um, seems to focus on um, retro titles. I'm going to go to you on, uh, on this one, John. I mean, you guys know my feelings on these types of services, right? Like this is this is like a kryptonite for me <laughs> in a way. I, I, I really, I genuinely don't, see this as being interesting on its own is it kryptonite to you john because um they're not doing i mean the core thing about games pass right <laughs> is um uh that you're getting um the key first party titles and a lot of third party titles on day one launch right that is kind of like the the killer app but that's not seemingly what's going to be happening with Spartacus. yeah which makes uh, this less I don't know what to say about this. I mean, from the perspective of the consumer, I actually, especially in Game Pass, the value is very high, right? Especially with the cost of games today. I mean, I am a staunch defender of physical media, whatever, but not everybody is willing or able to shell out for these games. So it's a, it's a pretty smart way to make next-gen games, current-gen games affordable for people. I get that. Uh, this offering does not seem to be quite the answer that uh, Microsoft has necessarily, which is, is which, you know, it's like, if it's literally just PS, PS plus and now plus the retro catalog, I mean, that's completely fine, I guess, but I'm not sure that that, that would be enough to slice into the market that Microsoft has sort of carved out for itself. But I'm also not, not really, I, I think that's actually okay because uh, I don't like this move towards everything, you know, essentially losing that that value of like actually owning a game right away. So um, I don't know. It's a it's a really difficult thing for me to to get, wrap my head around how I feel. But I will say the retro stuff is interesting, and I'm gonna be very curious to see how they go about demonstrate like showing it. Like I don't think the PS2 games on PS4 are good. I don't think that works well. The emulation there, like we've talked about this before, like just PlayStation 2 games do not really work well when you just boost the resolution the way they do, right? 
like the UI stuff looks terrible. Uh, most of the way the visuals were, the visuals were very specifically made with the CRT in mind. And when you take that away and render them in high res, it kind of destroys the, the intent I'd say. And most of them end up looking pretty shoddy as a result. Like it's, it's not a preferred way to play it. Uh, and PlayStation one also like just blowing that up those pixels onto a large screen. Doesn't, it doesn't really work. So I would like to see them actually like what would make it interesting is if they tried to do like sort of pseudo CRT simulation, you know, really high end like filters using the graphics capabilities of the system to sort of try to match the original look of the games. We know this stuff is possible now, uh, but if they're just like doing typical upscaling or higher rendering resolution, then it's just not going to be uh, very interesting for me. And once again, it sounds like placed, I mean, PlayStation 3 will probably still be a blind spot here, I'd imagine. It seems like like they're not going to be like Microsoft has Xbox 360 titles on the service, and some of those are hugely enhanced, right? I just did a whole video about that. Uh, but the PS3 being what it is, it still seems like that's just not really feasible outside of streaming and, well... So just to go into sort of depth on um, what they're proposing here, three tiers, first tier is... PlayStation Plus, as it is now, second tier, will apparently include a large catalogue, quote unquote, of PS4 and eventually PS5 titles. And then the third tier will have extended game demos, game streaming, uh, and a library of PS1, PS2, PS3, and PS2 titles. PS3 is mentioned then, but... I wonder if but it, it's going to be, it's got to be streamed. It's got to be streamed now. Right? Yeah. Like, I mean, this is the thing, mm. right? Because, um, I mean, this is why I've got concerns about this. I mean, standard PlayStation Plus, fine. The second tier, a large catalogue of PS4 titles. Oh, okay. You know, fair enough. There's still a lot of PS4 owners out there, right? Uh, and But having, and eventually PS5, that's kind of automatically making it less appealing to owners of the new machine, right? And then the third tier, extended game demos. Okay, I'm, I'll, I'll be in, in for that. Game streaming. Well, I've seen PlayStation now game streaming. I'm not interested. And then this concept of the retro um, tier. I guess my misgivings about this is that I think, I don't know, since after the Vita's PSP support and PS1 support, Sony have not delivered any decent emulation. Um, I might be wrong there, but um, PS, PS2 on PS4 um, is is not good. Yeah, it's the, a miss. The Vita was really good for this, by the way. You're right. Yep. It, they did an awesome job with that. Uh, uh, PS1, again, you're quite right. It, you know, the, if you're just going to blow up resolution, it's, it's not going to look good. But there's, we know there's ways to do it right. I think the question is, we haven't seen any kind of um, expert curation of Sony's incredible back catalogue. Um, and that kind of worries me about this tier. This could actually be a killer tier in terms of content if they pick the right games, because there's a lot of really good games on those, those platforms, right? And many of these have become prohibitively expensive uh, to the point where like releasing them this way makes a lot of sense and it might give people a chance to experience it. And again, like I get it. People aren't going to be running out to buy these, you know, these games on the original discs to play them on original hardware, like by and large, uh, that's very niche these days. Uh, so it does make sense to put this stuff on a service 
It's just a matter of how they curate it and how they release it. Like Nintendo has their online service. I don't think they're doing a great job there. They're barely putting stuff out. It's very slow trickle. Uh, I mean, there's some good stuff on there, of course, but it's nowhere near what it could be. And the N64 emulation is bad. And it's just, you know, so it, it could really go either way. And I mean, I hope it goes well for people that want to play these games again on a modern system. So, uh, and they just need to take this seriously. And I hope that they look at what happened with the PlayStation Classic and and took the right message from that. Not that people didn't want PlayStation 1 games, but that they wanted them presented well. <laughs> Not with bad emulation, with uh, like PAL versions of half the games running with like Judder due to the 50 hertz to 60 conversion. Like that was a very uh, big fail on their part. And I hope they understand that why it wasn't good. What I want to see is some investment in this back catalogue, some genuine care, because there's still, you know, the kind of unwelcome uh, stink in the air of, you know, the comments from Gene Ryan when he was looking at the, talking about the older games, saying, why would people want to play these games when we're putting these new fantastic stuff out? It just sort of represents a sort of tone deaf take on the value of their back catalogue. And uh, I honestly think that, you know, um, the platform holders should be looking at the enthusiast retro scene because, you know, you look at what the retro tink is doing with scaling old games. It's, in, it's incredible, it, you know, and it could be done in software on, on a console, I reckon, and it could look fantastic. Mike Chi's like writing these amazing like sub-pixel simulations in FPGA, you know, where it's like trying to simulate the look of different CRTs even rather than just scan lines. It's like actually trying to represent the phosphor grid properly as best as possible. And he's doing that on a small FPGA chip. Like they have access to these vast GPU resources on the PS5. Uh, you could do some really impressive sort of like filters for this stuff to simulate the look of it. Uh, they could do this and I hope they do it, but we've not really seen it. It is going to be a sizable investment from Sony to actually make the most of that back catalog in terms of getting the emulation and the presentation right. And I include PlayStation 3 in that, by the way. Um, but once that, I mean, the fact that we are now on um, a set course in terms of x86 CPUs and um, Radeon GPUs, put that investment in and that investment will last you forever, right? It's, it, you know, the cost amortized over time is basically going to be nothing. So, you know, I really do hope to see, uh, to see things happening there. And I think this kind of also applies to Microsoft too, because, you know, OG Xbox, obviously um, you are getting those huge resolution boosts but we are seeing discontinuities in stuff like UI elements, which look really rough. Not to say anything will happen there per se, but I have shared feedback with some people at Xbox about this regarding like the scaling of UI elements and 2D elements and, and just like sending examples of what it could look like and everything. And they have at least said that they are looking into it. And, you know, who knows what that means, but... Are you saying, like, introduce uh, scaled UI, but... Yeah, stuff like oh, that. Oh, that'd so, be nice. Again, that'd like, be yeah. you know, it's just... It's my my hope that they look into that because that would, that would solve a lot of issues because upscaling with, like, a blur to full resolution is really bad for, like, these old... That sort of 2D artwork. It just doesn't look good. So 
but it could look good if done right. And that's an interesting example because Microsoft has put in the core investment into the emulation side. So they do have um, a pretty good curation of the back catalog as far as licensing agreements will go. And the emulators are, are pretty good. So, you know, again, it's just something to build on there. This is a shame that, you know, like the PS5 doesn't and PS4 can't read CDs, right, at all. Uh, they could have done something to allow people to use their original discs. I mean, on the Xbox, you can use the original discs, of course, but it's still downloading something. But I, but I would like to be able to pop in like a PlayStation 2 disc that's supported and have it just work. But uh, unfortunately, that's not feasible. And I'll never understand why they felt the need to strip out that CD laser. It was an extra penny on the dollar, John. They couldn't allow that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, let's move on. Final news topic here. I'm going to let you take point on this, John, because uh, I haven't been paying attention to it. But uh, it says here on the docket, bulk slash, the English read translation has been released. Tell us more. Yeah, so uh, a month or two ago, Audie and I did a stream with the developers on this. Essentially, bulk slash is a fantastic 3D mech game for the Sega Saturn. Uh, it's very, very impressive and really, really fun. Uh, the thing is, though, Japanese only, and the mission relies heavily on voice. So you actually have, like, like co-pilots with you, and you can actually pick them up along the way and change who's with you. There's, like, different people in there. And essentially, a lot of what's going on in the game world and, and your objectives and stuff is driven by voice. Uh, so if you don't understand any Japanese, then it becomes very difficult to figure that stuff out and a little more trial and error. So these guys have not only translated everything, uh, they've actually redubbed it with shockingly professional quality. So all of the, the, the voices in the game are now in English. They've also done some quality of life hacks to improve the way it controls. They've added different control methods, including, I believe, support for the, uh, the virtual on twin sticks, if you want to play it that way, which is super cool. Um, and that's coming out like, you know, it's just that's the thing is now it's it's out there for you to get um, and you have to essentially take an original ISO of the game and merge it with this, of course. Uh, but yeah, if you if you have a Saturn and you have a way to play these games, definitely do give this one a look because it's very cool. Okay, um, well, let's move on to our next uh, range of topic points, which is where we're going to be talking about recent content. Obviously, um, in the last week, we've done something like three Halo Infinite videos. We covered off um, the, the core features. We did an amazing uh, tech review there, thanks to John. Uh, we did a deep dive into the PC version. We compared all of the Xbox uh, versions. And uh, there's still a lot to talk about, right? Actually, uh, first, we... before we get to that, I do want to say like congrats to all, all of us. As, you know, pat ourselves on the back. <laughs> Because this was a getting all those videos out was a huge effort for everyone. Like we all like worked on this stuff, right? And looking, I watch you know looking at all three videos, I feel like it's one of the strongest uh, game launch like selection of content we've done in a while. Like there's just a lot of good information there all around, and yeah, so. You know, I'm really happy with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it was a similar approach we took with uh, Forza Horizon 5. Um, it, it, it paid off there. It paid off here. I'm really happy with the work. Um, but the chat, <laughs> the chat, John, the chat must continue because uh, you came up with a rather interesting point, which is that this is the first Halo game that's come out that you can't 
buy on disc, or rather you can buy on disc, but there's nothing of much consequence on the disc. This is a bit of an issue, right? Yeah, and so this this did bother me because obviously I like to collect these games and own them on disc, and even without patches, it's nice to be able to pop it in and, and get some version of the game. Uh, and that's not possible with Halo Infinite. And a lot of people found out, including, you know, somebody that follows me on Twitter chatting. He's such a Halo fan. He actually drove seven hours to get the game early because there was a copy available. He went seven hours, got the game seven hours back. It was like a full day trip, uh, pops the game in and it's like, oh, you have to download this. You can't play the game. Uh, and a lot of people ran into this and it's, it's a huge bummer. It also means, you know, years down the road, if you wanted to replay it and the servers are not available, which is still feasible, can't play it. Uh, un annoyingly, some people think that when, when you point this out, that you're being like against the platform. Uh, but I take this critique for all games that do this, that are single player, at least. Activision is very guilty of this. A lot of Switch publishers are very guilty of this. Uh, the difference with Halo, I think, is that there is nothing on the box to indicate that you have to download it, right? Like those Switch games, there's a big white banner at the top saying internet connection required for download. It sucks, but that's what it is. Here, it's not really stated. And I think uh, Forza Horizon 5 has the same thing going on. So I'm a little worried about this. With Forza, I think it was down to probably disk space because the game itself is so large. But Halo is under 50 gigabytes. It's like, it's like 40 something. It would have fit on this disc. Um, my theory was actually that it's because this game is, uh, it treats the campaign as DLC basically for the multiplayer front end. And I suspect that and maybe running up too close to launch maybe meant that they couldn't actually get it on the disc. But um, I did, a, I ran a poll on this to see what people think in terms of like physical media preferences, just because I was curious. And I got 54%, 54.6 said they prefer physical media. 40% say they prefer digital. 2.7% uh, said discs should die. And 2.4%, this is the big one, say, I only game on Stadia. So <laughs> oh my goodness. Shout out to their, to that 2.4% uh, of people. It's fantastic. All I can say to that 2.4% is uh, give GeForce Now RTX 3082 a game and uh, yeah. it'll blow your mind. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Probably leave Stadia then. So, you know, I think the point of raising this we want this to be better for everyone. I understand that people prefer digital games and that's completely fine, especially in this day and age. Um, but I, I really would like the option to remain there for the people that would like to have these games, you know, an, a hard copy of them. Uh, and I don't think that's too big of an ask really in most cases. And also, uh, there's people that are doing the, the work on testing new games that come out and, you know, more than 80% of games that ship today, like what's on the disc is actually very good, very polished, very functional, no patches necessary to enjoy it. Uh, that upper 20%, a good chunk of that is still perfectly playable from the disc, but you're missing some features and maybe there's some issues along the way. And then there's this top, like small number of games. Unfortunately, some of them are very high profile, like Cyberpunk, where what's on the disc is like kind of not good at all. 
though it is still playable at least. So I'm just a little bit concerned that we're getting into this and, you know, I know that they're pushing these subscription services, but I feel like these two things can and should coexist. Uh, and also I don't know if it's possible, but I would really like it if it's, if in the future when Xbox one is left behind, if they could find a way to shift to the larger capacity UHD Blu-ray discs on Xbox as well, the system can read them. We know that. So it should be feasible, uh, but they're currently limited to 50 gig discs because it has to work on the 2013 Xbox one. So, I mean, ultimately what I want is something better for for the audience it's better for the for everyone really technically like it's having this out there is a good thing i think it's kind of like turned out to be the case that smart delivery is a double-edged sword right where um it's proven to be extremely advantageous to the user in terms of uh, generally not having to pay for upgrades to games and uh, typically it means that one purchase means that uh, you're sorted across the generations. This is all good stuff. But what it also means is that in terms of getting discs out there, um, it's very rare that you actually have an Xbox series disc. You have this kind of hybrid smart delivery disc that never has or typically doesn't have Xbox series code on it. I think this could have worked. It could have just, um, I mean, they've done it on PlayStation. You have a PlayStation 4 disc and a PlayStation 5 disc. Absolutely, but... Uh, Problem so, solved. But they don't have the smart delivery function, right? But I think smart delivery is fine in the sense that, one, for anything digital, obvious. It should just work like it does now. For discs, anything that receives, like, say, an upgrade for the system, you use that original Xbox One disc, it detects it, it can upgrade. For actual like Series X games though, I do think they should have split them and have like a Series X version and then a one version of the disc. But I think it might be feasible to have like a a sliver of a track printed somehow, possibly on, I, I don't know if this is technically feasible, but I've seen stuff like this before where like an area of the disc on like say a hundred gigabyte Blu-ray disc that the original Xbox One can read. So if you did, purchase an Xbox Series X exclusive game or one one that was a, a disc just for Xbox Series X, the one could still read that track and be like, okay, you own the game, let's download it. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's that's the big thing is they should have put out a specific format just for Xbox Series X. Yeah, I think there's also, I mean, there is the preservation argument, as you've said, uh, which is to say that um, well, that gets into DRM stuff, uh, which is something. Yeah, totally at some point in the future, though, these these servers may not be available. These games may not be available, in which case all you've got is the disk and that disk is of crucial importance. Um, the other thing which is uh, kind of a bit more bizarre is that, you know, the cyberpunk disk is actually an important historical artifact. It's the game. It's the game frozen in time at a specific point. It has content that isn't in um the the, the the shipping game so it has value from that perspective it's like um, um what was the uh, assassin's creed unity yeah also that, that original launch disc yeah yeah Fly exactly yeah. i mean it got fps boost it went up to 60 frames per second but if you had the disc you were there at day one with that you know so there are definitely some um big uh, preservation um factors for that so yes that's got to be a that's 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 all got to be addressed. I mean, it will be addressed, I suspect, at some point when the Xbox One is no longer supported. So, you know, what's going to go on the disc? It will be series code. And I will um, continue but, to put the word out on this stuff. 
But what it means is that there's going to be like this two-year, possibly longer period where all of the disks aren't going to have any series code on it. Um, there, I mean, there are some that do have series code, like Devil May Cry 5 Special Edition. Um, but there are many others, including Microsoft first-party stuff, uh, that won't. I mean, one suggestion that did come up, which I think is quite intriguing, is you know a, li a limited run of disks with final code you know, a couple of months on down the, uh, the road. The the only argument against that seems to be, well, people aren't interested in recent games, which is ridiculous. <laughs> so, My goodness. You know, My <laughs> goodness. That's one possible route forward there. But yeah, there's going to be this big gap um, uh, in in sort of disc versions of, of Xbox games. And it's generally not as pronounced. I mean, it is still an issue in some cases on PlayStation, but PlayStation seem to have a requirement that when you've got a gold master game you've got a gold master disc and that's that's set in stone yeah i mean again there's still some games of course uh usually publisher driven on those platforms as well that are missing stuff but most of the time i think it's multiplayer games like battlefields this way uh some of the call of duties were like this um you know it's i can kind of understand how it ends up that way uh but for multiplayer only games or multiplayer focused games, it doesn't really matter, I guess, in the end, because the servers go down, you're not playing the game anyway, so it doesn't <laughs> well, matter. Back in the good old day of uh, having LAN play, having oh. that original disc was awesome. I know. <laughs> I, I used my TFC it. disc all day, you know, back in the I'm day. I'm so, so sad that, that LAN play has gone away. Man, uh, it that, is in Halo, was, by the way. What's uh, that? It is in Halo, apparently. I've, I've yet to try it. I think really? Halo Infinite does actually have LAN play. I think it was announced. Oh my gosh. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, one of the nice things about it. Cool. I think one thing I would like to pivot this conversation to about is about the general quality of Halo Infinite on launch. Um, I know we talked about it all in our videos, uh, but, you know, uh, and Rich talked also at the beginning of this video technically a bit about, you know, the inclusion of DLSS into Sony titles being like, this is nice stuff to do for PC players. Uh, this Halo launch has me really torn because I can see the quality in a lot of the aspects of the game itself, but I do wish that they held on to the game for even longer than they already did uh, because I wanted to play the game in a really crisp and awesome uh, trouble-free form when it launched. And I don't think we really got that uh, on PC, especially here this time around. Um, and I think a lot of players, based upon what I've read uh, on Reset Era's PC performance thread, or just any of like our games uh, commentary about people trying to get the game to run on PC, that we're looking at a title that it is pretty worrisome that Microsoft thought it was okay to launch it in PC in the state it's in, uh, at least the single player component. Obviously people are playing the multiplayer, but that has very different requirements. Um, so I hope that this doesn't happen for any other uh, Microsoft games in the future, um, because this was not a good launch, I think, on PC, actually. They even had that special video talking about the PC version. That's weird. And it yeah. ended up not really, uh, you know... Mattering much. Yeah. 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 Mm. Well, you know, obviously there was that report this week from uh, Bloomberg Jason, Jason Schreier uh, discussing the various challenges behind the scenes that face 343 Studios. Um, it looks as though, essentially... Uh, the game was, I'd say, almost rebooted in a sense. They took a look at what what they had. They pared it back massively. They're talking about two-thirds of the content being gone, which explains those 
biomes that we saw in 2018, which are completely absent from the final game. Um, and obviously, uh, it was a really challenging development effort. Uh, I think the final game is possibly miraculously good uh, <laughs> in, the face of, <laughs> in the face of what we were reading in that article. And it was kind of the case where we kind of suspected this stuff was going on um, because, you know, we could actually see the game last year and we could see that there were problems and it was being continued. You know, the, 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 the point was when it missed the launch for Xbox series consoles, that's kind of a, a big, massive klaxon, right? So in one sense, it's a, a miracle that we've got the game that we've got today. Uh, but I, I do see your point, Alex, which is that um, you can't help but think that maybe, you know, even a month, two months of extra development time could have made all, the world of difference in terms of polish. Yeah, it really could have. Yeah. Mm. I mean, imagine um, if Cyberpunk really know had come out this fall instead of last fall. Oh, it would have been right. Uh, that's another that's an example where they pulled the trigger way too early despite the mm -hmm. already have been delayed i wonder if our expectations for last gen would have been more tempered and because uh, it's still not in a great state on ps4 and xbox one it never will even be now it's and never will be what's yeah. possible <laughs> so I, I do think there's probably a huge discussion to be had about halo infinite but i think it's fair to say that um the game still needs work it was heartening to get um forewarning from Microsoft while we were doing our review that our critiques had been taken on board, but they wouldn't be making their way into the final version of the game. And uh, one thing actually to, to pick up a point that you were talking about earlier, John, about um, uh, this concept that a lot of people just don't like criticism of their chosen platform. Um, what we generally find to be the case is that feedback is usually welcomed wholeheartedly by the developers and publishers um, because a lot of people hold on to their criticisms until embargo and um, and then it, you know it comes out of the blue the developers are blindsided they don't know what's going on and um, it causes you know a lot of panic and um, our philosophy is simply to be transparent and open but in the case of halo i think it's slightly different in that all pretty much all of the critiques we had um, apart from the cutscene stuff, I think, kind of materialized months prior. And it kind of indicates that the tech team were uh, significantly stretched simply in shipping before they could address these issues, but hopefully they will be addressed. Um, I think that's all we've really got to say about Halo Infinite at the moment. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's move on. Um, and <laughs> uh, we're going to be talking now about Christmas content because um, I don't know about, well, I do know about you guys, but I'm completely exhausted. <laughs> yeah, we're all bummed up, yeah. Um, and um, <sighs> yes, the, the culmination of our year is that somehow we have to get 31 days of content prepared in 20 days, um, which is uh, sort of like a, a sort of final up yours to what's been a really challenging year already. But we are going to have some stuff uh, coming. I think, John, you're hoping to get your uh, and indeed alex your game your games of the year um videos that should be my final video i do this year and um hopefully tom will come up with something and um there's going to be stuff happening on the df supporter program i think i mean i'm looking at the the spreadsheet in horror at this particular <laughs> idea <laughs> you're gonna have to sell it to me john yeah okay so uh, for the patrons 
imagine it's like Christmas. It's the Christmas season. I'm browsing my game collection and suddenly a horrific Santa-like creature enters the room towering above me, uh, bearing what he calls gifts, but in actuality are Phoenix games. Basically the worst publisher that created games on PlayStation 2. Uh, We filmed the whole thing of the ghost of Phoenix past visiting me to share Phoenix games. And there's going to be 12 videos, each one fairly short. uh, And it's essentially the ghost of Phoenix past past gives me the game. uh, And then we play it. And the, the, the film session we had was really quite enjoyable I played it pretty straight, but I got I didn't realize Audi had these kinds of acting chops because my goodness, <laughs> it turned out it turned out pretty good. So it's uh, okay, well, I, I'm very can I just confirmed that the uh, the Santa like figure isn't Santa. Yeah, it, unfortunately, <laughs> well, I can I I can't actually confirm or deny, but it's it's not Santa. I'll tell you that much. Um. Oh my gosh. So we are going to be uh, we're going to be um combining the 12 days of horror into a single video which will uh, go out to everybody at some point but for the full unedited glory of uh, Phoenix Games a new sort of DF supporter program retro to a new surprise <laughs> <each> day. <laughs> That's the it's, biggest this, this is a pretty tough sell actually. <laughs> I mean um, it's it's tough but I mean there's games like Dynamite 100 in there. It's 100 games. In one. Oh, they must be dynamite, you know? They're, they must be dynamite. <laughs> wow, it's incredible. I mean, it, it is incredible. <laughs> um, also, I think what, um, what we've got lined up is a best of DF Direct because at some point we would like to actually take a week off from doing DF Direct Weekly. Um, so there, there will be... Um, what clip show? Uh, DF. Good idea. Well, a clip <laughs> show. Clip I think show. it's going to be quite entertaining, actually. I'm quite looking forward to watching it. Um, the return of agonizing rectal pain. Our uh, <laughs> Patreon supporter uh, with his amazingly straight question. Uh, lots of fantastic DF Direct moments that will all be combined into one glorious whole. Um, and yes, just generally, it's going to be happy holidays all around, hopefully. And uh, it's going to be awesome. Uh, let's move on. It's the DF Supporter Program Q&A. And um, yeah, we've got a few questions to get through here. A very quick one here from Joe Tanko. Tom's videos say Xbox One, while everybody else goes with Xbox One S. Is it fair to assume Tom's the only one using the OG Durango and everybody else is testing using a 6% GPU boost over Tom? This changes everything. Well, I hate to break it to you, Joe, but um, uh, Tom just hasn't updated his uh, label library. So he is actually testing on Xbox One S. And the reason we chose that um, to, to move to the 1S is simply because in terms of volume in the market, there's far more of them out there than the set-top box. And I think we'd kind of prefer to forget about the, the set-top box. Also, the Xbox One S is a beautiful machine that I feel okay with having out in my setup. <laughs> uh, I don't really like to keep the old Durango out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yeah. you know what? When When the PS5 gets a refresh... Same fate awaits that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But yes, I think uh, I'll just have a word with Tom and get him to upload, uh, update his label. I think that, that would solve all of the confusion. I'll send it over after this to him. Next question from uh, Jean-Luc Holmes. 
Avoiding a debate on various surround sound equipment, you can buy what is the general level of support for surround sound setups in modern games. I've spent years playing with either TV speakers or stereo headphones, but have recently considered buying a surround setup. But would like to know if that money is even worth spending. This isn't even about Dolby Atmos support in games. Just 5.1 or 7.1 that's actually worth enabling at the very minimum. This is an excellent question, right, John? Absolutely. And as somebody who is very much into home theater setup, I think it is 100% worth it. Uh, most games today have an excellent surround soundscape. Uh, the caveat being that a lot of Switch games do not and ship only in stereo, which is kind of disappointing. But on the other consoles, everything pretty much is going to be in at least 5.1, but usually more than that. And I think it adds a tremendous amount to the games, the experience, um, just having those rear channels and not just the rear channels, but like the whole separation of everything, having a center channel for dialogue, for instance, uh, really is great, you know, makes it more film-like and just easier to understand what's being said. And developers make really good use of high fidelity audio in these modern games. And especially if you have a good subwoofer to go along with it, uh, that LFE channel that adds a lot to it. And when you hear games in Atmos, it goes even further. And I do have some height speakers above my chair, kind of. And uh, man, some of the games that use that are just, its its it adds so much to the experience. It, it feels like you're living inside this bubble of sound. Uh, it's very, very enjoyable. So, you know, head, headphones are fine, but... I like headphones quite a bit. And, and it's <laughs> an interesting point, though, right? Because um, obviously with uh, PlayStation 5, Mark Cerny's focus was initially on headphones. It kind of still is, really. It's not really on discrete um, surround speakers at the moment. That's a huge bummer in the sense... I mean, so PS5 games still have excellent you know, 7.1 surround sound, right? So you're getting the surround in there, uh, but there's no support for the more spatial formats uh, for home theater users. The one for speakers is specifically intended for TV speakers users, which is kind of, you know, whatever. Um, so it's clearly two types of, of groups here. And I think both, both should be catered to, uh, the stereo, especially headphone users versus the surround sound user. Uh, and you can do great surround and headphones and stereo as well, of course, but you never really get that depth and that like, when you when you listen to some of these like Atmos demos, especially on a good home theater system, it's it's really something. Uh, it's it's not you cannot replicate this in headphones, not with that presence and that intensity, where it shakes the whole room and you really feel it. That's that's incredible. <laughs> so, only thing to note that so we live in a in a standalone house, but if you live in a place that's like an apartment or like a, a you know a flat connected to somebody else that should factor in when it comes to like, you know, doing this kind of thing because a good subwoofer is so important to the experience and uh, your neighbors will not like you if you crank up that subwoofer. I will say that much. Let's move on to the next question uh, from the hilariously named Pimp, Pimp, Pimp Cane <laughs> 3000. <laughs> That's going in the real. <laughs> yeah. Pimp Cane 3000. It's a good one. It's, the thing that stands out to me, though, is the 3,000. Oh, gosh, yeah. Is he superseding the 2,000? 
<laughs> but his actual question, uh, again, following the uh, the strategy of hilarious hacker alias and straight question, how useful is dynamic resolution scaling, I ask? Because the new Deep Forest trailer for GT7 still sees some FPS drops and or judder. And I was wondering whether DRS could prevent this from happening. Alex? Uh, I mean, I haven't frame counted the trailer, or uh, sorry, fra yeah, res count that trailer. I presume it's a static res. Uh, in the case that it is uh, just, you know, some one-off drops here or there, then yeah, of course, DRS is always great, uh, but it, it's not easy to implement into every single engine out there. It requires some tooling. It requires, you know, uh, to make sure that uh, all these post-processing effects and other things scale correctly when the res drops and things don't get weird. Uh, so it's not something that is just so arbitrarily added into a game uh, as much as I would love it to be arbitrarily added into a game. I don't know, John, do you have anything to say about this? Uh, I do, but it's less about dynamic resolution scaling and more of the nature of YouTube. As we know, even on high-end devices or on you know, high-end phones, TVs, YouTube drops frames. It loves to drop frames. You can never, ever, ever trust what you see in a YouTube video in terms of judging frame rate, especially with like little skips and stutters and judder. Like that stuff, it's... I, I've never been able to fully eliminate that on any device. It just, it, that's just what it does. Um, I think Alex and I, we were looking at a video at, when you were visiting on my phone even, and like, it just, I, it was driving me nuts. It's like, why, why is this not completely smooth? Uh, so it's one of those things where we have to see, like in this case, we really have to see the game before you can pass judgment on whether it's actually dropping at all. I, I have a feeling what you're seeing is YouTube skips. Historically, with Gran Turismo titles, um, they always seem to preview with dodgy performance, and it does generally tend to improve by launch. In terms of dynamic resolution in a driving game, um, I'm kind of in two minds about this, because if you look at what the Forza Motorsport guys and indeed Polyphony Digital do, typically they want to have a consistent um, uh, level of image quality. They want the, the lines on those cars to look great. And so they stick to a chosen resolution there. I think possibly the game changer there is Forza Horizon 5, where the DRS has been implemented in such a way that it is noticeable, but I don't think it I don't think it's probably going to be that noticeable in a living room environment and also doesn't overly compromise uh, the presentation. So I think we just have to wait to see what the final game is going to look like. And at that point, you could possibly put in a what-if scenario about DRS. Um, but let's move on to the next question, which is also about DRS. This one from Brannock. Why do devs tend to limit dynamic resolution bounds so much? Why not just set it at 4K to 1080p and let the system do its thing? In Quake 2 RTX, you can set your own dynamic res range, say 50% of full res and your FPS target, and it just works. No faffing with other settings. No faffing with other settings to get an absolutely solid frame rate. I was cruising around at 120 frames per second in a fully path-traced game, and it looked great. Why don't, get, why don't devs just change the FPS target for DRS and VRS for their performance modes? and leave it like that? Well, this is an interesting question, right? Because we actually do have a scenario 
where a developer has done exactly what Brannock suggests with uh, Crisis 2 and 3 remastered. And it, and it works, right, Alex? Yeah, that was one where their initial uh, DRS range was just not aggressive enough. And so the game was constantly dropping frames in areas where it'd be just like one or two off-drop frames. And it just was, it was just annoying because you could see that the game could be much smoother if they just did this. And they did based upon our feedback. John's feedback was critical there to getting this game running well. <laughs> uh, and um, so it is a thing. I guess the one, I mean, I also am really annoyed by this. I'm really annoyed by it in the last couple Assassin's Creed games where it goes down to like 85% of access resolution, which is almost useless for dynamic res scaling. Uh, it's like, and on the consoles, they allow it to scale down to like less than 50% even if they wanted to, like they literally do. Uh, so <laughs> uh, it's just like completely arbitrary at times why devs do this on one platform or not. Uh, but one of the reasons why they don't want to do it sometimes, I would imagine, is that there's um, that if they do allow it to scale so far down, it could lead to really heavy compromises in image quality in moments where they don't want it, that they're willing to make the, the sacrifice uh, for performance. Uh, like they don't want it to be fizzling out at like a really intense moment. Uh, that's the one one of the reasons why I think they could do it. Or maybe they have an effect in the game, for, for example, where if res scaling a bit gets below a level, uh, things start getting weird. Uh, that That is another thing that is totally possible. But like you, Brannock, I agree. I would love to have games that have DRS actually give you this nice control over the bounds of it and also the bounds of how aggressive it scales. So not just the the how quick, like how low res it goes, but also how quickly it goes low res. Uh, because sometimes games are not aggressive with that either. And you can see like it still drops frames, uh, but then it kind of then goes back up again. And I don't actually like that that much. Yeah, you need a more aggressive frame time threshold, I think. I've heard some some developers, they get dangerously close to 16 milliseconds for their threshold. And it's very easy to get an over budget frame or two in there before it adjusts. Uh, but there's actually another thing about this that's interesting. Speaking to some developers, like it's more about the ceiling rather than the floor. Like you could say, well, just let it all run free to 4K. But the problem is, is like if you're really far off from that target, just allowing it to go that high can actually be detrimental and cause like a sudden unexpected bottleneck. Because there's situations in anything where you could like look in a certain direction at something simple enough where like, oh, rockets up to native 4K. Turn the camera around quickly and the system may not be able to catch up fast Assassin's Creed does actually... this. What's that? Assassin's yeah. Creed does this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so this is a serious problem where it's like if you if you set the upper bounds too high, uh it ends up being a problem in terms of like catching up and you know, I think it's you should you should always set your upper bounds to like a ceiling where like let's say the system in question is reaching that ceiling like a certain percentage of time, right? Like if you're only getting to 4K like 10% of the time, then setting that as the ceiling doesn't make sense. There's really, there's not really any value in doing that. But if you're there like, you know, 60, 70 plus percent of the time, uh, then absolutely that should be the upper bound. So it's just about finding that right. And on the PC though, I really think that this kind of stuff should always be very customizable and Quake 2 RTX does an awesome job of that, which is how Alex and I are able to enjoy this game at 160 frames per second. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. Delicious. 
Yeah, I think all I've really got to say about this is that um, I do agree that wider windows work and um, it's, it's worth pursuing. Uh, but at the same time, I just don't want a scenario where it becomes a crutch for um, replacing really stringent frame time budgeting. It's got to be, I mean, if you look at what Forza Horizon does, DRS is basically the method of last resort in maintaining frame rate there, which is kind of like the extreme end of one scale. And then you've got on the extreme end of another, a game like um, Marvel's Avengers, which I don't think would work without dynamic resolution scaling at all. The game basically relies on it for a consistent performance level. I think there's got to be somewhere in the middle, really. Really need to do a DF refresher on uh, the first Riddick game from Starbreeze because I think that's might be the first example of dynamic resolution scaling in like a shipping game. I need to look more closely, but that one would scale up to 480p, but it could go well below that depending on what was happening. Well, if there's any any users or developers out there who can question that, you know, it was there a game using earlier DR. Please get in touch because we want to see it. Um, okay, let's take a look at the next question. Another fascinating one from Carlos Garcia. Do you foresee more developers making use of, or at the very least, allowing users to play their games at above 60 FPS in cases where perhaps 120 is not feasible on the latest gen consoles? Could there be an opportunity for DRS 90 FPS or even better, a slider that lets you trade resolution and frame rate within a certain window of performance? John. So I think that this this is something I think Alex and I have asked for a lot, but specifically in the context of VRR, uh, 90 FPS doesn't work without VRR. It's just juddery, so it doesn't make sense to go there. But I think I've been kind of advocating for specific modes for VRR display users uh, exclusively, basically. Like if you're using VRR, it should allow you to better sort of customize your target frame rate and maybe the resolution targets as well uh, to take advantage of that. Because I, I suspect there's a lot of games running the 80 to 90 frames per second range, which actually looks fantastic on a VRR display, uh, provided it's working correctly, of course. <laughs> um, so, but again, we do not want this. If your display does not support VRR, you don't want this. You want those multiples of the refresh rate. So 30 or 60 or 120, but if you're actually using a 120 hertz display, then also 40 becomes a, a viable alternative, something we've talked about as well. They did that in Ratchet. Um, so yeah, I really think there needs to be two considerations there and that it's still not a good idea to just unleash the frame rate like that if you're not using VRR. I agree. I think, um, well, 90 frames per second. I mean, you've got to remember that frame rate isn't scaling linearly with frame time. So, so, so 90 frames per second is actually a big boost over 60, but moving up to 120, although it's an, an extra 30 frames per second, the boost is not so pronounced. Um, but uh, yes, I agree that VRR is essential for that. And you could actually have a capped 90 FPS and it would look awesome. Yeah, that's how v VR Absolutely. displays, you know, are like around 90 well, to 85 and they look great. That's actually a really good point, which is where, you know, in early VR, that's where they decided to, you know, put their flag. 90 hertz was a big boost over 60 and um, it got the job done, right? And I think it's a, a, a absolutely the case here, but obviously it wouldn't have a fixed rate 
multiplier at that. So you would need VRR. But I think it's, you know, VRR is basically a standard now on any decent 4K TV you buy. So, yeah, why not? I'm all for it. Okay, let's move on. Uh, small town volcano. <laughs> <laughs> Asks, is this a Pierce Brosnan movie? I, I want to know. <laughs> well, you know, just getting shades of Pompeii here. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> Small Town Volcano asks, since you've been lamenting the frame rate and performance of the era, do you think the poor re response times of commercial LCD televisions at the time helped standardize 30fps during the 360 and PS3 era? I know the advent of filmic effects helped and a lower frame rate probably hid deficiencies of animation as well. But I remember hooking up a PC to my living room at the time and finding that everything at 60 FPS looks muddy or just weird, but couldn't quite put my finger on it at the time. I'm going to go to you uh, in a minute on this, John, but I think fundamentally the, the main issue of that whole era was that um, everything changed. We moved from CRTs to uh, fixed grid panels, of varying qualities and it basically saw a big sort of gen on gen reduction in performance in all manner of different vectors but um this is a quite an interesting theory i'm not sure i buy into it what do you reckon hmm so he thinks that everything 60 fps looked muddy or just weird well if you think about you know think about um say a football slash soccer game that would have been viewed on those lcd televisions at the time when there was the left and right panning it was a blurred smudgy mess right i think that's what he's getting towards uh with 30 FPS, there's enough of a gap between each frame that doesn't, that actually kind of works well for slower LCD panels, right? Uh, so you don't really, it looks correct. Whereas at 60 FPS, I mean, 60 FPS on like a, on a, on a high persistence LCD display is, is just an awful looking thing, I think. Uh, and specifically that was the generation where everybody transitioned to HD. So everybody was buying these HD TVs and a lot of them were LCDs. And those were, that was a time when LCDs were especially bad and you combine that together and you're just going to end up with something that looks smeary and, and bad. And it's, it's the display that's at fault a hundred percent. Obviously things have improved a lot. Modern LCDs are much faster than that now, though still not perfect. Um, but yeah, I, I, that was a very dark time for those of us that liked clear motion, you know, going from the prior generation that was heavy focus on 60 FPS to then PS 360, like whether you're 30 or even up 60 or worse, like everything was, was reduced because of the displays at the time. Uh, plasma was an okay solution. That's what I used, but even that has its own limitations, but I, I did like plasma. Yeah, I think it, I mean, it did have an impact on the presentation of the game, depending on what screen you had, really. Also, it's interesting, Alex, just this week, he finally loaded up um, Quake 2 RTX on a CRT next to him. I've been preaching this word for years. I always, I always say the CRT, there's just something about it that looks so good. But you sent me a message saying, I'm playing this at 160 hertz at like 640 by 480, and it looks like God made it. It looks better than my 4K LCD. Oh, by and far. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I actually, I'm starting to think that I also just like the general light organic nature of the pixels than the ultra crisp razor edge pixels. Um, maybe that's a heresy in some circles. I don't know. Uh, but uh, just like looking at it and like even like 
modern games, like, for example, the new Matrix Awakens Unreal Engine 5 experience. I have yet to load it up on the CRT because I don't have an HDMI to VGA. I only have DisplayPort to VGA currently. But I imagine that's another thing where the exact nature of the footage we're looking at there at around the 1080p range, which this monitor can do, um, it's going to probably look <laughs> more like the original Blu-ray than this weird 4K mixed output that we're seeing right now. Um, yeah, John, I agree with you. I don't know if I agree with Small Town Volcano's premise here that that's the reason why there were uh, standardizations to 30 FPS in the period. I think it was this weird conglomeration of the hardware being the way it was and devs wanting to push effects. And I think it's um, just it's unrelated. Yeah, market research. Ugh, I don't know a whole bunch of stuff that came in there, uh, but. I was also like you, I was playing on, uh, actually still on a CRT in this era on PC, uh, but I did hook up my uh, PC to a plasma display that my family had, and I didn't actually have that many big problems. I think the biggest problem I had was the weird resolution. <laughs> it was like 1360 by 768, and it was just like the weirdest thing. Plasma handles motion not as well as a CRT, but it's relatively near it. Uh, it's also a phosphor-based display, so... Yeah, and it looked good, too, I thought, back then. So I, I didn't have this uh, experience that you had, Small Town Volcano. Well, I'll tell you what, John, I want to see uh, the Matefix demo running on a CRT now. That's W900. <laughs> Man, that, that would be pretty sweet, actually. Killer video. Uh, exactly. Content, in my opinion. <laughs> Could be good. Okay, let's move on to the final question. Lee Morris. Lee Morris. Hi, I hope everyone is well. Well, that's, thanks for asking. After watching My Life in Gaming's latest excellent video about how the different Nintendo Online re-released controllers work with Switch games, it got me thinking, what is everyone's favorite ever controller? Peace and love, he says. Alex. I guess uh, it depends on what I'm playing. Mouse and keyboard. Mouse and keyboard is the best controller that ever existed. <laughs> no, but I play, I play some games with... Uh, uh, controller. I play the Dark Souls games with controllers. Play fighting games with controllers. Um, uh, I guess I actually always liked the asymmetric sticks of the Xbox 360 era, controller S, etc. I always thought asymm asymmetry just felt m more natural in the way I was resting my thumbs. So I was like that for that kind of stuff. But uh, for fighting games, I, I really like these um, Neo Geo style controllers uh, a lot with like the, the six buttons and then like the the really cool thumbstick that's like super clicky and has the switches in it, uh, like the, the analog switches. I really like that for fighting games. Uh, for retro controllers, I kind of go with Sega Saturn because it has like a D-pad from the heavens that nobody's really matched since then, I would say. And then runner up to that would be uh, kind of like Alex was thinking, the actual, the, the Neo Geo CD controller. Uh, it's four face buttons, but uh, that that clicky stick with the micro switches is is one of the most satisfying things to use. It feels so so good. It's sublime. Love it. Uh, but for modern style controllers, I kind of feel like I want to say the the latest Xbox controller because I feel like it's just refined to perfection at this point. You know what I mean? It's just very comfortable to use. Uh, I like the materials, the button placement. Um, all that stuff. Maybe the D-pad is still not where I'd like, but overall it's a... Uh... Oh, actually, no, the, the D-pad is is good now. It's better. Not perfect, but it's better. Um, 
but overall, I mean, it's probably the best controller for modern games right now, I'd say. Although I do like, I mean, I like the stuff that's added in the dual sense, of course. That's really cool. Uh, but in terms of just sheer comfort, the Xbox One, it's it's great. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm in agreement there. And I really liked the, um, the Elite controllers as well, uh, simply because um, it was an acknowledgement that quality materials just feel great in the hand. And that does actually have an impact on the gameplay experience. But yes, I do feel that the new Xbox controller really is the Xbox controller refined to the nth degree. And I do really respect uh, the features in the DualSense. And I think some of the implementations of the DualSense uh, features have been absolutely sensational, game-changing, in fact. Um, but it doesn't feel so comfortable in the hand. And secondly, the resistive triggers are overused to the point where it becomes annoying. It's all very well to, um, uh, to sort of try to replicate the feel of resistance when you pull the trigger, but it actually just gets in the way of gameplay for me in most scenarios. It just feels, it makes the, the concept of pulling the trigger more of a chore um, so it's a it's a controller that I respect and I can see the vision behind it and some of the core um, uh, sort of implementations of those features have been terrific but equally there have been some poor ones as well that I don't really get on with so yeah I, I don't really have a, a I don't really have any kind of emotional attachment to a specific controller but that's really where I am at the moment on that come on man you know uh, that, that, that is, Saturn D-pad <laughs> yeah, it was sublime. Yeah, good. Absolutely. And for the time, the Mega Drive six button controller was also uh, was the one because yeah. you know basically mm. gaming at that point was Street Fighter Two and nothing else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that controller was just epic. It was really really so fantastic. Good. Absolutely. Um, but that's it. That's our show. That's the last question. Thank you for making it all the way to the end of this one. Please do like, subscribe, share if you enjoyed the content. Bell ringing, of course, notionally instant uh, notifications. Uh, DF supporter program, join us. Amazing things happening. Brilliant community. It's a game changer. Uh, but that's all from us for now. Thanks for watching. Bartikus. <laughs>